0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. All right. Chapter 11. So we are in part four, meaning... So text, observation, context, meaning, application. Chapter 11, in part 4 now, what does the passage mean? Systematic theology. So our goal is to discover how our passage theologically coheres with all of Scripture. Assessing key doctrines, especially in direct relation to the gospel. So if you go to a book like Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, what he's done is he's cataloged all the major doctrines. He's done systematic study of what does the Bible say about missions? What does the Bible say about salvation? What does the Bible say about the work of Jesus? And then he packaged it into chapters. But when it comes to Using systematic theology in your day-to-day Bible reading, what you're doing is targeting a specific passage of Scripture and asking, what does our passage contribute to a knowledge of angels? Maybe nothing. And if so, you don't need to think about it. But it might tell you something about the makeup of God's people about the process of sanctification. Tell us something about the end times that have already been inaugurated and will be consummated. So, considering how our passage contributes to what the Bible has to say about X. So, what is systematic theology? How to study it, and then a case study in systematics. So what is systematic theology? Here's my basic definition. The study of Bible doctrine designed to help us shape a proper worldview. So we're not just studying information. Always, it's designed to help reorient our own perspectives on reality where God is right at the center. This lens through which we consider all of life, all that is, in a way that is from Him, through Him, and to Him. The shaping of our worldview. Studying Bible doctrine designed to help us shape a proper worldview. So, systematics presupposes, first, that what the Bible has to say is right. Because we're going to be shaping our understanding of reality from specific Bible teaching and that Bible teaching is growing out of these 66 books. And so we have to approach systematic theology convinced that what God says about reality in this book is correct. That these are pure and true and upright affirmations about whatever the Bible's talking about. Second, Scripture bears an overarching unity through diversity, progressive revelation, and the progress of redemptive history. Progress means there's development and growth. Progressive revelation that God is actually disclosing Himself and His will in in increments in ever-increasing ways, building on past revelation. That we know more about God through now that the New Testament has come than we did when we were only in the days of Malachi. And then that God has disclosed Himself over a 1,500-year period in this book through multiple genres, and yet that all of it has one main divine author who therefore has orchestrated everything, be it the diversity within the text, the progress of revelation, or the progress of redemptive history. One man, not one man, one God has been orchestrating every bit of it from creation to consummation, from Genesis to Revelation. So there's a unity, an overarching unity. Systematic theology is driven by a conviction that even in the midst of the progression and the movement from anticipation to fulfillment, from anticipation to realization, that that development in all of it God's at work and there is an overarching unity to what the Bible has to say about x. So, some key questions. First, a general one. What does the whole Bible have to say about prayer, about demons, about God Himself, about the nature of sin, about how we get saved? What does the Bible have to say about such things? That's the general category of systematic theology. And when we bring it into our biblical interpretation, we're saying, how does our passage theologically cohere with all, that the, rest, all the rest that the Bible has to say? How does it relate? What does it contribute? And so I'm looking... So I'm, I'm looking at... The at my text, asking specific doctrinal questions, such as theology proper. What does theology mean? Anybody? The study of God. So we have theos, lagos. Lagos is word, but it can also be used in the context of uh, the material that is studied. So it comes to be known as the study of theos, namely God. So the theology proper, theology, systematic theology, all of it is a study about God. But when we're just asking the question, I mean, it's, it's broad though, when we're talking about Who God is, what God does, what God is disclosed, what His purposes are. But when we're just narrowing in and asking ourselves, what do we learn in the Bible about God? Then it's called theology proper. Now, there's classically 10 different categories and then a host of subcategories in systematic theology. So we're going to look at these and I want to see What you're able, most of these are going to be very simple, but I'm going to use the technical terms, and you're going to give me the study of what? Bibliology. The study of the makeup of Scripture. What is its essence? What are its limits? So, questions of canon, questions of authority, sufficiency, clarity, all of these are part of bibliology. The doctrine of Scripture. Angelology. Doctrine of angels and demons, fallen angels. Right. Whoa. How'd that happen? Really? How did that happen? What did I do? I even practiced and I thought it's all working right. Wow. Well, maybe my test is over. So. Anthropology. I just, oh, give me a second. Ah, uh, one second. There. Let's see if we can get it to work now. Funny. Anthropology. Anybody? The study of humanity. Hamartiology, getting a little more di- tricky. Sin. Hamartias is the Greek term for sin so the study of sin hamartiology the doctrine of sin christology the doctrine of christ and his work his person and work how about soteriology bingo bingo the doctrine of salvation so one of the distinctives of bethlehem college and Sem- bethlehem baptist church our elder affirmation of faith, is our conviction that God is the decisive mover in salvation. That in the order of salvation, rebirth doesn't follow belief. Rebirth is necessary in order to make faith happen. The Spirit blows where He wills. And He awakens faith, which then leads to justification. And those who are justified are sanctified. And those who are sanctified will be completely sanctified, called glorified. But God is the worker and the cross event when it comes to ultimate salvation is 100% effective. Pneumatology. The study of the Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. And ecclesiology. The doctrine of the church. So, under the Spirit would be everything related to spiritual gifts. It would overlap with spiritual warfare and how we confront in angelology. Ecclesiology would be broad to include everything from church government to the mission of the church to baptism and the Lord's Supper, but also missions. Eschatology. Doctrine of the end times or last things. Now, why last things might be helpful is because usually a doctrine of death is considered an eschatology. But when we think about end times, so there's personal eschatology, personal immediate death, and then ultimate factors. If I was to write a systematic theology... I would be highly tempted to make the chapter on eschatology right up toward the front of the book. Almost always, eschatology is, one of the last, is, is the last chapter in a systematic theology book. But the reason I move it up is because all new covenant theology is end times theology. You heard all that the prophets foretold in the past, but in these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son. You're experiencing at Pentecost all this outpouring of the Spirit. Well, I tell you, this is what Joel said would happen in the latter days. That the latter days was initiated at the resurrection of Christ. And that all of our reality, as we understand it, living as... Part of the new creation in this overlap of the ages is end times reality that's been initiated, yet it's not fully completed. So our understanding of Jesus and his work is an eschatological or end time reality. Missions is an end times reality. Our whole doctrine of what the church is and what the church is about is an end times reality. So usually when people think about end times, they're thinking about the millennium. And that's how we understand the return of Christ, the timetable. All of that is still future. Um, But much of eschatology is already rather than not yet. Doctrine of creation usually falls under theology proper. So, who God is and what God does. But the doctrine of new creation could, would be talked about under Christology or soteriology or eschatology. Because what you have is the future intruding into the middle of history. That's what Jesus does. He brings the future into the middle of history, while the old age continues to continues on in Adam. Where you're describing it, about where you put things in order, to me it seems like okay, yeah, there's distinct aspects, but it's still a big all of Well, wow, but uh, Yeah, it's together. It's, together. it's together. All these ten. Yeah, that's so true. So there's always a tendency as we try to make things simple, we actually complicate them because all of these factors are overlapping over and over again. You're absolutely right. So, consider two terms that some of you may are probably familiar with. Calvinists versus Arminians. And you look at this list and which of the doctrines are most at the fore in this debate of God's bigness and the decisive role he plays in certain events? Soteriology. 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 Theology. Uh, Bert's seeing them all, yeah. <laughs> well, anthropology. anthropology. Yeah, what does it mean that man is dead? Pastor John's new most, uh, well, his forthcoming big book, which he feels is like the culmination of his life, is on the doctrine of providence. And he's given multiple months to it, and he's going to give the next three to this book. We just wrestled with a number of the issues in a faculty forum that we had every month the faculty meet and we talk about major issue, Pastor John presented some key questions that he is having as he's wrestling through God's providence and confronting Arminians. And the leading Arminian, who's at Baylor University, the leading publishing Arminian, um, Pastor John was reading a number of his quotations and we were wrestling with how he understands the makeup of man. And it appears as though he believes that every person on the planet is partially saved. Just not wholly saved. It's called, how he understands, prevenient grace. So that yes, everyone is in Adam. But when it says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in the ways that you once walked, following the prince of this world, following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that... He understands that to mean everyone in Adam. But now, you've been made alive, everyone fits that category. Everyone on the planet is partially alive. Meaning that God has done enough for them through Jesus to let every person be saved. And now it's up to each person to decide. But what are we getting at? Bert, Bert might be able to make a good case for pneumatology and ecclesiology. Um, But what I've got here, these are at least the main ones. How do we understand God's bigness and how in control of all things is He? What is the makeup of man? Are we all dead? Partially dead? Mostly mostly dead. (laughs) Just mostly dead. Hamartiology, how in control of our lives, how imprisoned were we to sin? Soteriology, how do we get saved and who's the decisive mover? How about this one? Complementarians versus egalitarians. Where's this debate principally among these ten doctrines? So, egalitarian, meaning that apart from sexuality every other role between men and women is equal in the home, in the church in the society complementarians there is massive equality in opportunity to display the greatness of God, opportunity to relate to God opportunity for men and women side by side to subdue and have dominion over God's world and yet within that equality that there are distinctions of role within the home within the church and then at certain levels within society which of these 10 is this debate fought over ecclesiology anthropology theology so, I wish I, yeah, I'd add some more. Bibliology, that, that's so true as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I would add more to my list. That, that's really good. How about this one? These are bigger words, maybe not as familiar to some. Classic Covenantalism, Progressive Covenantalism, and Dispensationalism. Eschatology. Ecclesiology. So, what's at stake here is how does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? And how does it impact our understanding of where everything is going and the makeup of the communities in the Old and the New Covenant? Can you just, in a couple of words, just tell me what those are? Yep. So, classic covenantalism focuses significantly on the covenants, but all of them address the covenants. But specifically, it looks at the covenants, the biblical covenants, and it actually sees an overarching framework where there is a covenant of works given to Adam in the garden. He fails. And so if anyone else is to have a relationship with God, they're going to need to enter in through a covenant of grace. And Jesus comes as a new Adam and... His perfect obedience secures what Adam failed to secure, and that is lasting life. And now by faith, we unite with Jesus. It sounds very much like who we are. The distinction of classic covenant theology is that they see much more unity rather than progression in the covenants, such that the old covenant sign was circumcision, the new covenant sign is baptism, Circumcision was given to to eight-day-old babies, and the coming of Jesus doesn't alter anything other than the nature of the sign. But So so that you baptize babies. So Presbyterians are principally classic covenantalists in the way that they're understanding the flow of Scripture, and they don't see the work of Jesus um, altering in significant way, the substance of the people of God. There's a shift in scope, meaning there's more remnant today than there is rebel, but there's still both remnant and rebel in the new covenant, just as there was remnant and the rebel in the old. And that's why, so, so they're willing to baptize babies, even though most Presbyterians would not say that they are saved. Progressive covenantalism focuses not on these major categories of Covenant of works, covenant of grace, because you never see those categories in the Bible. Instead, they identify movement from Adam and Noah, a covenant with all creation, where a problem is created, to a covenant with Abraham, through whom that problem is going to be fixed. The Abrahamic covenant is then, has its own dual stages, stage one of Abrahamic covenant fulfillment, is Abraham as a father of one nation in the land with a king. Stage two of the Abrahamic covenant fulfillment is Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. And that progression identifies distinction. So that the old covenant, when Abraham was a father of one nation, Israel in the land was filled with rebel. But in the coming of Jesus... All of a sudden, missions goes global, hearts get transformed in distinctive ways so that now ecclesiology and soteriology are completely overlapping. That you cannot be part of the covenant community without a changed heart. And so only those who by faith have accepted Jesus are considered part of the covenant community. And so it takes a declaration of baptism which automatically should be accompanied by membership with identification to a local body in order to proclaim, indeed, we are part of the covenant community. So progressive covenantalism is highly covenantal, and yet it's baptistic. And all of the faculty members at Bethlehem College and Seminary happen to be progressive covenantalists. We have had... Pastors who are dispensationalists. Let me go there. So the dispensationalism is how um, most of the popular church from the late 1800s in the rise of Protestant liberalism, when they were focusing on love, 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 and no presence of sin, no need for a savior, dispensationalism is actually what dominated the church and carried its faithfulness for over a century. And, pardon, in the American church, absolutely, in the American church. And so dispensations are different periods, usually cataloged in seven different progressive periods from the days of Adam all the way up to the um, consummated new heavens and new earth, seven different stages in God's working throughout history, and in each stage he Engages humanity in different ways, so one of those but then prog- dispensationalism actually has three different types there 's classic there 's revised and there 's progressive and so it it becomes um, it becomes quite detailed, but the biggest distinction i 'll just say this the biggest distinction is that dispensationalists do not see um, the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians as ever enjoying all the same blessings as Jewish Christians. So there is, in the future, whether you are classic, revised, or progressive, you're going to ever distinguish the Jewish inheritance from the enjoyment that Gentiles will have in Christ. So, even though there's one new man today and the church is one, that in the future, inheritance rights will be divvied out in two different directions. And all dispensationalists hold to that distinction between what God will do in Christ for the Jews and what God will do in Christ for all the rest of the world. So here... We have had, at present, um, I don't think we have any, any pastors who are dispensationalists. But we have had, them, had some in the past. And this is not part of our elder affirmation of faith. So there's breadth enough for us to dialogue about such matters. Distinctions of church government, principally ecclesiology. That's where we're talking. Yes, yes. um the well it it could it usually would fall under classic covenantalism and so but it it all depends on who you're talking to um but such that the god was doing a work among the jews And they rejected, just like you just clarified, and so now God is doing a work among the church. Um, The often progressive covenantalists are considered replacement theologians, but we're not. We are fulfillment theologians. Seeing that through... Israel, the Messiah, would come. Jesus represents Israel, and through Him, now Jew and Gentile alike need to be adopted into the family. So we're not seeing replacement, we're just seeing fulfillment of all that the Old Testament anticipated and hoped for. So... I'll wrap it up here. We've looked at this a number of times and Pastor Jason referred to it in one of his sermons last fall. Theological triage. When it comes to systematic theology and doctrines, we always have to have an appreciation, I think, for the importance, the relative importance of different doctrines. And it's the relative importance that actually helps distinguish who Christians are from non-Christians, who Baptists are from non-Baptists, and within certain churches, who practices Halloween and who refuses to. And if you treat all of those different spheres at the same level, it's going to be a very unhealthy Christianity. So level one are doctrines that are essential to Christianity. The Trinity, the full deity and humanity of Jesus, justification by faith alone, the authority of Scripture. These are, are barriers that if you don't hold to them, you can't be a Christian. Because it, it's, by na- it, it, it's, it's exactly what the text demands of us, and, and to go outside of it, you've, all of a sudden you're believing in a different God... You're considering a different way of our being able to be reconciled to him that is outside the bounds of what is absolutely clear. Level two doctrines, though, are reasonable boundaries, meaning that, and this is where there's the biggest debate and why we have denominations. When you're looking at the New Testament, we don't see this category But the further we've become separated from the apostles, it's become absolutely necessary. Because men and women can't always agree on everything regarding what the Bible is actually teaching. We have common ground at top level issues, but these are issues that if two pastors on the same staff disagree, it could make it quite difficult. The meaning and mode of baptism. There's lots of congregational churches in New England that say pastors can be on either side of this. You can either baptize infants or you can only, only baptize believers. But it influences our understanding of the nature of the church and What you end up having is one pastor who's saying, you say your child's baptized, but I don't think he is. And it it makes things sticky. The role of women in the home and the church. It's very difficult for a single church to have different definitions of whether a woman can preach in um, a local congregation with men present. And if pastors differ on this, it's going to make bring disorder into a congregation. So uh, it's a second-tier level issue. God's sovereignty and salvation. Having Calvinists and Arminians on the same pastoral staff can make it very difficult when it comes to pastoral care and our vision of God and, and what's coming from the pulpit. Level three are doctrines addressing minor disagreements where... You and I can wrestle, and I remember the story of Pastor John talking about an older man who was just convinced that Jesus was going to come back before the tribulation, and Pastor John believed that Jesus would come back after the tribulation. And Pastor John told him, I don't remember his name, Bob, if I'm right, I will joyfully embrace you and love you. But if, I'm, if you're right, will you grab me before you go up? <laughs> the timing and sequence of Christ's return and then matters of conscience. Public school, Christian school, private school, home school. These are not issues that should divide Churches. Whether it's okay to give candy out at Halloween or not. These shouldn't, these, these are matters of conscience. These are also third level issues. And we should be wrestling over them and then allow our own consciences what we believe is right or wrong to be ever calibrated to what scripture would teach. But they're third tier issues. I'm, I'm just Among Christianity? I would say probably most Christians in this world are prone, are on the Arminian side of the spectrum simply because everyone who is born is born self-reliant. And it takes a lot. Even after we become a believer, it can take a lot to overcome our sense of control. And yet for me, the biggest step of freedom was when I realized God was in charge. And even though I didn't understand all things, He did. And I could find rest. was say about ten years ago I up about 90% of the side more Arminian. All right. Next, what I want to do is just consider the process of actually doing systematic theology, considering questions of doctrine when it comes to our passage of scripture. I have a series of steps. The first one is pray. Now we could focus here at every single stage of the exegetical and theological process. But I want to focus in here, um, especially when it comes to clarifying doctrine, because we are at a step here where we are truly uh, in assessing the meaning of the text, trying to get into the passage to shape our biblical worldview. We need to get it right. So the first step, asking God to supply both insight with reason and humility with love. Oh God, give me insight with proper understanding, and let my heart grow in a level of dependence that overflows in love for others. Ask God to supply both insight with reason and humility with love. So why do we begin this stage of doctrinal assessment with prayer? Number one, we don't want to be ashamed of failing in rigorous God-dependent thinking. When we don't think rightly about the word, it's something to be ashamed about. Consider these texts. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Paul is wanting developed minds and maturity or growth. Our movement from infancy to maturity is something the Spirit brings about. Ever remain an infant toward evil. But in your thinking, be ever increasingly growing. And we need God's help to make that happen. Here's Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 7 and 15. Think over, Timothy, what I say to you. Because, for, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, some people say, this is God's word. He'll just reveal it to me or illumine me. When it comes to reading his scripture, the Lord will give me understanding. And Paul would say, yes, that is right, but that does not stop you from reading, in fact, from thinking. In fact, it is the very process of thinking over God's book that God uses to actually help us understand. Think over what I say because, why should you think? Because in that process, God will give you understanding in everything. Then he says, do your best, Timothy, as a shepherd of God's flock, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. As you begin to think over God's word, God will show up, granting clarity and moving you away from shame. You don't have to be ashamed if you rightly handle God's word, but it'll only happen because you've thought hard and rigorously, and we need God dependent thinking over God's book. Third, Peter said regarding Paul's letters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. So, right off the bat, that gives us comfort. There are challenging things in Scripture. And they're hard. They're difficult to wrestle through. But Peter didn't stop there as if it's impossible for us to come to a true knowledge of the Word of God. Instead, he said, there are some things that are difficult to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Judgment awaits those who working in ignorance and instability, fail to come to terms with what the Bible has to say about any topic. And that's a problem. In judgment is, is serious stuff. And God wants us to be a people who get it. And we will only get it if God shows up, awakens us, opens our eyes to behold wonderful things in his book. The second reason we need prayer is that the Holy Spirit is the only one who can aid us in gaining the experiential knowledge that the Bible demands. The Bible doesn't just call us to having our head awakened. It wants to transform our being so that our desires are changed, our will is altered, and it begins to influence our speech our thought patterns, what we desire to look at, how we spend our time, how we react, etc. Here's James. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We need God's Spirit to show up and begin to bear fruit in our souls that the very one who gave us new birth can begin to alter the course of our lives so that we don't deceive ourselves in thinking, oh, I've heard, when our lifestyle is not at all aligned with what it should be. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Orphans widows do you know any do you know their names and their stories religion that is pure that is more than just hearing but doing pushes us toward the broken and helps us stay unstained from the world only with the spirit's help can we become those kind of radical livers love uh, lo- ra- yeah radical people who live out such things. 1 Peter 5.5 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is not merely recognizing our own need. Humility is a em- full embrace of who God is for us in Jesus Humility is not about self-debasement, it's about Christ's exaltation. And that kind of a heart that's willing to recognize how much we need Jesus is something only the Holy Spirit can grant. Jesus said, He who is least is the one who is great. May God make us people like John the Baptist who say, I must decrease so that Christ may increase. Number two, after we've prayed and sought God's help, Then we engage and we begin to wrestle over our text, considering doctrine. And when we do that, we catalog and synthesize all the relevant passages. We use a concordance to collect the most relevant um, verses related to our topic. So, for example, if we were looking at Deuteronomy chapter 9, 25 through 29, we, we find a passage where Moses prays. He prays specifically for Israel. And Moses, 40 years removed from this event, is recalling how he prayed to God after the golden calf episode when judgment was going to be brought on the people. I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he'd destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord God, Do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you've redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, Oh, it is because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, that he has brought them out to put them into the death in the wilderness. For they are your people, your heritage, O God, who whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Now, if this was the passage that you were focusing on, there's so many different aspects of doctrine that we see here. Salvation, for example. You could consider the doctrine of salvation. Oh God, don't destroy this people whom you redeemed through your greatness. Verse 26, or verse 29, these are your people, your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power, by your outstretched arm. So we have the greatness of God as deliverer and the fact that he saves his people. And we could consider, how does this salvation relate to what we know about new covenant salvation? Or we could consider the seriousness with which God takes sin Moses is having to stand in the gap. He's pleading, Oh God, do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. Then, it's also that the people from outside, if God didn't pardon Israel in this moment and if he didn't bring them into the land, Moses says the people outside are going to think that you hate them because they know you would take sin seriously but that you would want nothing to do with them. So, Those are some different aspects. But at the core, what this is is a prayer. And what we might want to actually do is assess how does this prayer, the elements of this prayer, relate to other prayers in the Bible? So that could move us to texts like Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, all of which include extended prayers. Or how about the prayers in the Psalms? Where we would see similar laments brokenness over sin and pleading to God for help. And we could compare this prayer to other prayers. But we would also want to simply put into our concordance words like pray or prayer and see where it takes us and what we could learn. Are there other places where Moses prays? Oh, it would shoot us into the middle of Numbers where in Numbers 14, Moses makes a very similar prayer, pleading with God to pardon The nation, after the ten spies said, the giants are too big, and the nation followed them. We would, simply by looking up pray and prayer, have a whole arsenal of texts to assess. But we might also want to expand it to words like confess, intercede, petition, supplication, even the posture of prostration. All of these are If we wanted to understand what does the Bible have to say about prayer, and we wanted to know what our passage contributed to it, we would have such a vast and big study that we could engage in. Now, after we have collected all the relevant passages, then what we want to do is classify our text up against those other passages after we've carefully summarized their points and organized them into groups based on distinct patterns or features. So we we can begin to catalog, oh, there's different kinds of prayers. There's prayers of petition, but also prayers of thanksgiving. This prayer in Deuteronomy chapter 9 is without question a prayer of petition, a prayer of supplication on behalf of others. Moses isn't praying for his own sin, but for the sins of his people and asking God to pardon them. So we would begin to consider our text up against the whole range of other texts. Then finally, we would synthesize in one or more points what the Bible teaches on prayer or whatever topic we're considering, and then identify how our passage contributes to that understanding. So as we wrap up here, I just want to do a very brief case study in systematic theology using Exodus 19, 4 through 6 as our base. Now, as we do, I want you to think about the 10 different systematic theological categories and what types of categories fall in this passage. Here's Moses. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, there's many different way, ways that we could go about it. For example, notice how verse 5 focuses on the process of obedience. We could consider this text an Old Covenant text, and how the obedience here, how should we think about the call, what Israel ought to do, with what Christians are called to do? What we ought to do. Is the call the same? Is it different? Does it have a similar flavor? Uh, How do the... How does the voice of God and the covenant of God that we're a part of relate to the voice of God and the covenant of God in the Old Testament that Moses is referring to? So that's one aspect. But what I want to get at are two other aspects. One focused on salvation and one focused on missions. Look at the passage. It says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What is he talking about? He's talking about the great exodus deliverance that God did for Israel that becomes the basis for all of their life and existence. The nation was birthed through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea. When God brought Great punishment on Egypt and elevated Israel, preserved them through that judgment. And then, second, along with salvation or soteriology, we could also consider missions. Notice how the entire kingdom of Israel, will become a kingdom of priests. It's not a kingdom that has priests. The entire kingdom people will be priests. And they will be holy, like God is holy, if, and only if, they obey God's voice and keep His covenant. So, this role of a priest among all the peoples of the world. So just as Israel had priests, and Everyone who wasn't a priest would come to the temple in order to meet God through the priests. Now the entire nation of Israel, in the midst of all the nations, serves as priests to them. They put on display the holiness of God. And they mediate the presence of God, the mercy of God, to all the other peoples of the world. Soteriology, missiology. And where I want to focus in on is soteriology. Let's consider this passage. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So, notice that provides the basis for all the rest of the verse. When it says in verse 5, Now, therefore, it's drawing an inference from a past reality. Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation because God saved them from Egypt. The call to obey follows the call, follows the reality of their deliverance. And this is true in both the Old and the New Covenants. So I have up here that From a perspective of soteriology, thinking about the doctrine of salvation in this text, in light of what we know to be true in the New Covenant, we see a parallel in that the Old Covenant deliverance precedes the call to obey, just like it does in the New. Exodus happens before Sinai happens. The Exodus from Egypt gets them to Sinai where God gives them His Word. So, Israel is delivered by God, and only thereafter are they given the law to obey. Similarly, in the New Covenant, deliverance happens. We are justified, and only after that are we called to pursue a life of holiness, sanctification. We are made right with God, and only in that context, with God 100% for us, Do we even have power from which to obey God's word? So there's a similar structure of grace in the Old Covenant and the New. Deliverance overflows in the call to obedience. But there's also a different nature of saving grace in the Old and New Covenants. The structure of grace is the same. A deliverance overflows in the call to obey. But the nature of that saving grace is different. Only in the New Covenant are all hearts empowered to love God. In the Old Covenant, those who were saved out of Egypt principally still had rotten hearts that would not honor and obey God. You've seen all that I did, all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, Moses says what he did to Pharaoh and to all of his servants, to all of his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Only in the new covenant are all hearts in the community empowered to love God. Most of the hearts in the old covenant community remained stubborn, In Moses' words, they were uncircumcised hearts. There was still a shell around them that was hostile to God. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Be no longer stubborn. You have a heart problem. You need serious surgery on your heart. So do it yourself. And it would have only killed them. But the promise that Moses has is... That the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Israel in the Old Covenant was rebellious and stubborn. That's why Moses can say, I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today while I am yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? But he looked beyond the days of Israel's sin in the land and their exile all the way to the days of heart circumcision, when God would empower them to love him, it's in the New Covenant that we not only have ought but we are provided the canness of loving God with all. only in the New Covenant would all hearts desire to keep God's law. Jeremiah says. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. That's Old Covenant Israel. They have sin etched on their heart. But the day is coming, we're told, when God says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Rather than sin on the heart, God's law will be on the heart. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin no more. Only in the new covenant would all hearts, notice from the least of them to the greatest, They won't have to tell people, you need to know the Lord. No, they will experientially, every member of the covenant community, will truly have a personal relationship with God. And their heart's desire will be to keep God's law. Not perfectly overnight, but truly and progressively over a lifetime. Romans 2, 26-29. So if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, actual Gentiles who were honoring God with their lives, then will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, a Gentile Christian, but who keeps the law with God's help, will condemn you Jews who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a true Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Next, only in the New Covenant would righteousness become not only goal, but ground. Notice how it's worded in the Old Covenant. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as He has commanded us. All this commandment. This is complete and total obedience. And only those who keep this obedience totally will be considered righteous. But what Moses says is, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you're a stubborn people. So Israel is stubborn or unrighteous. Their life is not characterized by righteousness. It's characterized by a stubbornness if they were to obey perfectly, they would be considered righteous. Righteousness is the goal for Israel. But it becomes our ground. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved from by Him from the wrath of God. What has happened is this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness... Through Jesus leads to justification of life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus represents Israel. When Moses commands in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God. Jesus comes... And heeds Moses' command. He is like the nation. Perfectly now obeying where Israel failed. And so righteousness is declared over him. And it's that righteousness that is in turn counted as ours. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Very literally, the one who has died has been justified from sin. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For us, justification is the ground. It's the basis from which we start our journey. For Israel, the majority of the people, it was only a goal. Most of them were not like Abraham, justified by faith. Instead, their goal was righteousness, and they pursued it, not by faith, but as if by works. What then shall we say then? The Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, like Abraham's righteousness. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They've missed the significance of Jesus. What they should have recognized is that they couldn't keep the law. They couldn't do it on their own. This is why the salvation in the old and the new is so different. We have a God who is now, through Christ, 100% on our side. And he is looking at us through the righteousness of Jesus. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on law. That the person who does the commandment shall live by them. It's doing that leads to life in the Old Covenant. But the righteousness that is based on faith says Oh, what has Jesus brought for us? Don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? That the word already, right now, is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Finally, only in the new covenant would righteousness become goal, not ground. So, only in the New Covenant does saving grace abound. Here's Romans 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That's the Mosaic law. Why did God give it? To increase the reality of trespass. But where sin increased, Jesus comes and lets grace abound all the more. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites couldn't gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit even have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the new covenant ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. There is a beauty to the new covenant, So, digging into Exodus 19, and we consider the distinction between a similar structure of grace, but a different nature of saving grace, wherein not everyone in the Old Covenant was ultimately saved. Most of them remained with hard hearts, lack of love, lack of true personal relationship with God, self-reliant and bound for destruction but what Jesus does in the new covenant is make a way for all who are part of that covenant to have transformed hearts no condemnation righteousness already ours in Jesus and from that a fuel for us to live for God in a way that brings him honor systematic theology Assessing doctrine from our passage. Come back next week. We'll look at one more chapter. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and biblical theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.